when, uh, when Jenny and I got engaged, we had this engagement party, this couple's wedding shower thing. Uh, and I remember that, that during it, we asked uh, the guests who were there to um, write down a, a piece of advice for us, the soon-to-be newlyweds. And so people filled out these cards. We could go back and read them later. Um, and it's always interesting when you actually solicit advice uh, from someone else. Uh, sometimes it turns out great, sometimes not so great, but it's better than unsolicited advice. Uh, but there's like two different types of advice that we got. We got advice that came from uh, a healthy place and it was like, hey, this worked for us and this has kind of sustained our marriage and our relationship and, you know, try, try this out. So it was things like, you know, go on a date with each other as often as you can, kiss each other every day, things like that. It was great. And then you got the other people who gave advice from... Um, like their own tragedy, like we made this mistake, don't make the same one. It's kind of like this cautionary tale. And I remember reading these notes and the most common piece of advice that we got was, was this, don't go to bed angry, which like, that's fine. But I mean, we got like a bunch of notes that said that don't go to bed angry. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't go to bed angry. Don't go to bed angry. Don't go to bed angry. And I remember thinking, why is there so much anger? <laughs> like, the, what, what's, what's up with this? Here we are, we're so excited about marriage. And then after reading all these notes, it's like, man, marriage just seems like two people just get angry at each other every single day. And then you have to reconcile with each other before the, the night ends. Like, it doesn't seem like holy matrimony. It seems like hell or purgatory or something. <laughs> Don't make eye contact with your spouse if they're here right now, okay? Um, now, I am thankful. I am thankful that Jenny has put up with me for like 11 years, and uh, we've only had to put that piece of advice, don't go to bed angry, uh, into effect, into practice a few times throughout our marriage. Um, but it is, it is good advice. Um, it's good advice because it, it sort of kind of comes from the Bible. Um, here's actually the context of it. Uh, the Apostle Paul is writing to a new church in Ephesus, this group of Christians. And um, Paul is writing kind of this advice letter to them because they got some issues going on. They got some conflict there. And so Paul is writing to them. And uh, this is what Paul says. Comes from Ephesians chapter four, verse 26. Paul says, be angry without sinning. Now, in the Greek text, there's uh, two imperatives here. It's be angry and don't sin, which I don't know if you knew this or not. Many of you are actually living according to the Bible because, well, you're angry. Um, so good, good for you. Um, but I do think, I do think it's pretty cool that Paul just, he puts it out there. He admits that there is a place for anger. There, there is a place for anger. We, we do become angry, but there is a way to become angry and not to sin. There, there's a place to become angry and not to further the hurt that we have with one another. There, there's a way to be angry and not further the divide between us and between our relationship with God. There's a way to become angry and still show love towards one another and still show love towards God. Anger has a place, but Paul is saying, you don't have to give anger first place in your life. Anger has a place, but don't allow it to become a permanent place in your life. And so he goes on and he says, don't let the sun set on 
your anger. So there it is. There's that haunting bit of marriage advice. Don't let the sun set on your anger. Don't go to bed angry. Uh, So there's kind of two ways that you could take this. Uh, You could take it literally, like don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. And that's a good bit of advice for like, you know, if you have a situation where If you have males in the household and they constantly leave the toilet seat up, right? And you go to them and you say, hey, please don't do this. I've asked you to remember to put the seat down after you're done doing your business and all of that so I don't fall in. Right, ladies? Um, And then the guy says, you know, you're right. I forgot. I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. You forgive each other. You go to bed happy like it's a leave it to beaver episode. End scene. All good. That's great. But there's also some angers that take maybe a little bit more than one sunset to resolve. Sometimes maybe it's between now and two sunsets or three sunsets. Paul's point, I think, is is this. How many sunsets are you going to give it? How many, how many sunsets, which is a really good question because then it places the responsibility in your hands. The, the ball is now in your court. In, in all of this business of, of forgiveness and unforgiveness, when we've been hurt, so much of our lives seem unfair and out of control. And I think we get to ask ourselves, how many sunsets am I going to allow How many sunsets am I going to allow while I'm still angry? How many times am I going to witness the sun rise and fall while I still have anger in my heart? And I think Paul's point of this, and if you've ever asked yourself that question, how many sunsets, how how much longer, you already know the answer. Even one is too many, says Paul. And that's not to try to minimize the pain. It's not just, you know, forgive and and just forget. Remember, Paul says, be angry. There's a place for anger, but you don't have to let anger have a permanent place in your life. This is now, this is now about your future. Not just what happened yesterday or the day before, seasons before, but this is now about your tomorrow. When the sun rises tomorrow, what is your future going to look like? You've gotten hurt. You've been angry. Now, what do you want your future to look like? Forgiveness is a decision, but it's also a process. And the ball is now in your court. You get to decide what to do with it. How do you want to wake up tomorrow? Do you want to wake up feeling the same hurtful way that you do today or the day after that or the day after that or the day after that? How many sunsets? Another way to ask this question is, is this, how long, how long do you plan on letting the people who hurt you in the past influence you in the future? How long do you plan on letting the people who hurt you in the past influence you in the future? Another month? Uh, Another year, another season of your life, another marriage, another job. And it's not just forgive and forget. There are some things that that we cannot just forget. Some things that, that we shouldn't forget because they have made us who we are today. As painful as it may have been, we've learned some valuable lessons from it. And it's made us who we are today. The question is now about our future. How do we release the past so that our past can release us? We we don't have to be held captive to our past. How do we release that hurt so that our anger, 
Our bitterness, our resentment, our cynicism, our trust issues doesn't control our future anymore. That your past is there to inform you, but it's not there to control you. Our past reminds us, but it does not have to define us. Forgiveness. Forgiveness allows us to leverage the lessons from the past without lugging around all of the baggage from our past. Forgiveness allows us to leverage the lessons from our past without lugging around all of the junk from our past. And so Paul goes on and he says something uh, kind of strange next. It seems a little bit out of left field. Paul says, don't let, uh, don't provide an opportunity for the devil. Now we're going to come back to uh, the devil in a minute. Um, Sounds kind of weird to say, Uh, but first I want to talk about that word opportunity. Uh, Don't provide an opportunity. Um, So maybe you've heard this verse said before, you know, don't give the devil a a foothold or or something like that, a foothold in opportunity. It it means a staging ground. Don't, don't give the devil an office. Don't, don't rent him, don't rent him out space. Don't, don't put him front and center in your life. Don't give the devil a stage in your life. Don't, don't allow the devil to be put in the spotlight of the drama of your life. Because if you don't deal with your anger, then all that junk of your life is still going to stay there. When you don't do something about your past, you're allowing an opportunity for the devil to set up shop. You're giving the devil a a corner office in your heart to run and control and determine your future, all because of something that has happened in your past. Remember, the ball is now in your court. Forgiveness is a decision. It's not a feeling. Don't let the devil call the shots in your life. So now back to the devil. Uh, The Greek word that Paul uses for devil here in this uh, passage of scripture, it's not the typical word for like Satan or something like that. Paul just uses a very common Greek word that means liar or slanderer, deceiver, something like that. Uh, The devil goes by many names in the Bible. Um, For you, it might be the name Judy or whatever your mother-in-law's name is. I don't, I don't know. Um, But get out of your head that that little red guy in a leotard wielding a pitchfork and all of that. That's that's not how the Bible talks about the devil, Satan, the the liar, the enemy. Um, Instead, when the Bible talks about uh, Satan, the devil, it's, it's this accuser. It's this liar. But worse than that, it's a liar that has the ability to convince us of a distorted reality. I mean, after all, that's the whole thing with the serpent in the garden with Adam and Eve and the apple. The serpent said, hey, take a bite of this. It'll be great. You'll be like, God, your eyes will be opened. How did that work out for us? Not, not so great, right? And so here's, here's where I'm going with all of this. If, if the devil is a liar that twists reality to convince us of a distorted version of reality, and if a hurt from our past can keep us captive in our pain, then maybe the best way to understand what Paul is talking about here is to replace that word devil and put in the name of the person or persons who have hurt you. Now, let me be clear. I am not saying that they are the devil. 
I am not saying, I'm not agreeing with you that your mother-in-law is the incarnation of Satan herself. I'm not, I'm not saying that. I'm just trying to help you understand what Paul is getting at when he says this. And so let's read this verse again that way. It says, be angry without sinning. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't provide an opportunity for Tom. Clarice. Don't don't provide an opportunity for your ex-wife, your ex-husband, your your boss, your mom, your dad, whoever it might be. Do Do you really want to give the person who hurt you the most, the most center stage in your life to continue to impact your future? Of course not. None none of us want that. And so church, if you don't deal with your anger, it doesn't matter what kind of future that you had hoped you would have. You are giving the person who hurt you a place in your life and a place in your future as well. That's why Paul says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. You've got to do something. Do something about it now. Do something quickly and immediately. Don't just think that it's going to go away. You have an opportunity to make the decision to stop this cycle of hurt and anger. You've got a decision to make. And your past, it's there. Your past might inform you but it does not have to control you. Your past might remind you, but it doesn't have to define you. And so there is a place for your anger, but we have to keep anger in its place. And to learn how to do that, we're going to look at the teachings of Jesus. So one day Jesus was uh, explaining uh, to a group of people, crowd that were gathered around to listen to him. Uh, He was explaining to them what to do when someone hurts you, what to do when someone offends you. And he gives this actually very detailed account of of what to do. He says, first, you know, go to them, talk to them face to face. If the conflict is still there and they're still offending you, uh, then what you need to do is you need to go back to the church or group of people, seek some wise counsel, then go back and have another discussion and try and try again. It's this very detailed teaching. But anyways, uh, Peter, one of Jesus's students is there and he's listening to this and something in his mind must have just kind of popped into his head because he speaks up. And so this is what Peter says in Matthew chapter 18. It says, then after all this teaching, then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, How many times should I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Should I forgive as many as, I don't know, seven times? Seven seems like a good number. Seven seems seems generous. Seven seems more than enough. I mean, seven, after all, it's the number of completeness. The world was created in seven days. Jesus is seven times enough. Now, Peter... Peter, I think, probably assumes something about forgiveness that a lot of us assume as well. I think that that Peter's assumption is that forgiveness is for the benefit of the offender. That, That when we forgive someone, we're actually doing the person who hurt us a favor. But if forgiveness is a favor that we do for our offender, are we going to be quick to forgive? No. We'll wait around. We'll wait around until our, defend, our offender comes on their knees begging us for our forgiveness. 
and they don't come quickly either. And so we wait. And what do we do while we wait? We weaponize our pain. So while we wait, while we build our case, we end up having these imaginary conversations. You ever have these imaginary conversations with your offender? They're, they're always great because you always turn out so in the right and you always look so good. Um, but you have this conversation where, you know, here's this person who, is, who has wronged you, who has hurt you, and, and you get so mad and you get into these imaginary conversations where you think, you know, if I could just have the perfect opportunity, if I could just be set up for the perfect conversation, then I would show them. And always in these imaginary conversations, there's a crowd gathered around to witness this and to cheer you on and say, you're right, they're wrong, kick them out. But often what happens is that we just become angry. Even if you don't feel angry, even if you say, I'm fine, I'm at peace. I have just so much peace right now. Can't you see? Maybe you're not angry. Maybe something has been taken and you feel kind of depressed because depression is often the consequence of anger being repressed. Depression is often just the consequence of anger, repression. Or, or maybe for you, it's, it's the other side of the coin. You, you haven't repressed anything, but you've gone and you've told everybody about what they have done to you. I mean, the prayer meeting has just gone on and on and on, and everyone's on your side now. But at some point, we ask ourselves, when is enough enough? How, how much more do I have to bend in their direction? Is, is seven times enough? And Jesus says to Peter, ah, Peter, more like 77 times. Jesus goes on, next verse. Jesus said, not just seven times, but rather as many as 77 times. Now the Greek here, again, is a little weird. It might mean 77 times. It might mean seven times, 70 times. The Greeks were good at philosophy, not so much at math. Um, But I I don't think that Jesus meant this literally, that that you should forgive 77 times or 490 times. I, I think instead, the heart of what Jesus is trying to say here is that we should forgive without record. Isn't that what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, that that love keeps no record of wrongdoings? That that we should have this this habit of forgiveness as followers of Jesus. I I think what, what Jesus means here is that if your forgiveness is going to be complete, then it must be beyond counting. Because as long as you keep a record of wrongs, as long as you keep a record of, of reprimands and reconciliations, then you haven't just forgiven. You've, you've, just, you've just kept the tally marks going. When can I make it to seven? When can I make it to 77 or 490? Is that what you're doing? Just counting tally marks? Or are you a person who is characterized by forgiveness? That Jesus didn't come into this world to just make us forgiven people. That's good. That's great. But Jesus did something better. He came to make us forgiving people. And if you're so busy counting all the ways that you have been hurt and all the times that you've had to forgive, Jesus says that just shows that you haven't actually forgiven them in your heart at all. When Jesus taught us, to live out his message of forgiveness. 
He, he wasn't just uh, teaching us this so that we would have it for that one time event in our life or that series of, of events in our lives. I, I think he meant this as, as a daily practice that this should define our character, that he wanted us to be in the habit of forgiveness, to be, to be forgiven people who are then forgiving people. In fact, Jesus taught this in his daily prayer. The disciples came to Jesus one day and, and asked him, uh, teacher, teach us how to pray. And Jesus said, okay, I will. I imagine all the disciples just kind of perked up and, and listened up. And Jesus said this, this is how you should pray. Pray like this. Our Father who is in heaven, uphold the holiness of your name. Hallowed be your name. Bring in your kingdom so that your will is done on earth as it's done in heaven. Give us the bread we need for today. Forgive us the ways that we have wronged you or forgive us our trespasses, our debts, just as we also forgive those who have wronged us. And don't lead us into temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. You've probably heard that before. The Lord's Prayer. You might even know the extra words that we put on the end of this. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. But Jesus didn't end this prayer with an amen. Instead, it goes on and it's actually a further teaching about forgiveness. He put some qualifications on it just in case we didn't catch it in the middle of the prayer. He goes on verse 14. He says, if you forgive others, their sins, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive others, neither will your father forgive your sins. Yikes. That'll, that'll put the fear of God in you. <laughs> Right? That, that, that gives you some sense of, of urgency, right? But I think what, what just amazes me about this prayer is that there's so much that Jesus could teach us in giving us this, this template of how to pray. And, and if somebody were to ask me, you know, what, how should I pray? What's, what's the template? What should that be of, of my prayer life? I, I, would, I would totally overcomplicate it. I would make it more confusing than, than it ever needs to be. It would be this short novella that nobody could ever memorize. And I still wouldn't say it all. And if I'm honest, I would be tempted to minimize or just flat out exclude the things that Jesus seems to highlight the most. Confession and forgiveness. Receiving and giving forgiveness. Receiving and forgiving and giving forgiveness makes up almost half of this prayer. This prayer reminds us of, of, of what the human heart needs on a daily basis. We need God. We need our daily bread. We need our provisions, but we also need to be forgiven. And we need to be forgiving people. And, and I think just as Jesus put it in this prayer, it's a great flow. Forgive us. <laughs> starts with us as we forgive others. It starts with this practice of confession, our own confession, that, that when, we, when we practice confession, it reveals all the unhealed places in our hearts. And it teaches us that, that we can't expect perfection in others when we're not even capable of living it out ourselves that we need grace for our own human tendencies and, and so do others. See confession, it breaks the cycle of chaos 
within us. Forgiveness then breaks the cycle of chaos between us. Let me say that again. Confession breaks the cycle of chaos that we have internally. Forgiveness then breaks the cycle of chaos that is between us. So in a moment, we're going to celebrate uh, the Lord's Supper together. So remember Jesus's sacrifice to forgive us of our sins, uh, but also this lesson to teach us how to be forgiving people as well. And so before we come uh, to the table, I, I want to just invite you uh, just to be still for a moment. And maybe this is a moment for you to, to practice confession, practice your, your own asking for forgiveness, asking God to reveal those, those unhealed places in your heart. This is a time for you and God to be still, to listen, to lay your burdens down before the Lord and hear a word of forgiveness in return. Amen. We behold the falling rain Like waters rise come And flood this place we reach we cling to you, oh Lord. We behold the breaking dawn, a light that shines over everyone. While we were yet sinners, stuck in our own cycle of chaos, God sent Christ to die for us, to forgive us. And that proves God's love towards us. So in the name of Jesus, you are forgiven. As we now come as forgiven people, we come and receive the gift of grace and love that Jesus offered us through these gifts of bread and the cup that would then become his body broken and bloodshed on the cross. And so I would invite you um, have those uh, elements of bread and that cup out and just hold them in your hand 
as we remember, as we celebrate, as we experience the presence of God here with us through this act. So take that piece of bread. As we remember the night before Jesus went to the cross, as he sat around that table with his disciples, he took bread and he gave thanks to you, O God. He blessed it and he broke it. He gave it to them saying, take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then take that cup. Remember that Jesus gave thanks to you, O God blessed it, gave it to his disciples and said, drink from this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. And so just hold that cup and that piece of bread in your hand and pray with me. Oh God, we ask that your spirit would come and fill us flood our hearts with your grace and your mercy and your love that your Holy Spirit would be poured out on us that your Holy Spirit would be poured out on these gifts of bread and cups or that they would be for us the body of Christ the blood of Christ or so that we might be your body redeemed by your blood forgiven set free for a beautiful future in service to you and love for the world. God, make us one with you, one with each other. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.